This is hell. First off, Lindsay, what was the music you were playing before the show started? Because that was pretty damn good. That was Buffy St. Marie. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's our album, Illuminations, from I, I was, like 1969 or something. Yeah, 1969. I was just watching uh, part of a documentary about her this weekend. I didn't recognize her voice. That's really great. But I love Buffy St. Marie. That's crazy. My brother uh, turned me on to her a long, long time ago. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. And if this truly was a democracy in the United States, or if the world embraced the democratic notion of nations doing what's in the public's best interest, we might not be in the mess we are with climate change. Unfortunately, in places like here in the States, big industries' financial interests have supplanted the pursuit of knowledge when it comes to global warming. In fact, it even appears that there's bipartisan support for protecting industry from having to do anything to protect us from global heating. Industry is even being given government subsidies to continue contributing to climate change and environmental destruction. Take the meat producer's role in contributing to the global environmental catastrophe that is getting worse every day, as our guests today point out. Due to successful lobbying, methane has been classified under Biden's Inflation Reduction Act as renewable energy generation, complete with huge tax credits incentivizing expansion of factory dairies. They also point out how carbon credits are now traded like stocks in speculative markets, with both agribusiness and oil backing them as a tool for emissions reduction. Not that there is any evidence to suggest they actually reduce emissions. In a few minutes, we will be joined by political economist Jan... I had this right yesterday. Uh, Jan Dukovich... (laughs) Sorry, Jan. Uh, uh, Not that that there's any evidence to suggest that they actually create uh, emissions reductions in a few minutes. We will be uh, joined by political economist Jan Dukowitz and science writer Spencer Roberts, who wrote the New Republic article, How the Meat Industry Undermines um, Effective Climate Policy. I'm just being embarrassed right now because... I know his name is Dukovich, and I just got it wrong. Jan is a policy fellow at the Books McCormick Jr. Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. Jan studies the ethical, political, legal, social, and environmental dimensions of economic activity. His research examines the design, production, uh, circulation, and consumption of everyday commodities with the primary substantive focus on meat and other food products and a geographical focus on the United States. Jan's two current primary projects are a monograph about the politics of American corporate meat production and a co-authored trade book envisioning a more just and sustainable food system. His academic research has been uh, published or is forthcoming in journals including Nature, Food, uh, Frontiers in uh, Sustainable Food Systems, Journal of Peasant Studies, Journal of Culture, Economy, and Food Ethics. Jan has also written about the politics and environmental impacts of food production and uh, novel food technologies for publications including Wired, uh, The Guardian, New Republic, as his article that he co-authored with Spencer is from today, The Washington Post, Vox, and The Wall Street Journal. You can find out more about Jan at his website, jandukovic.com. 
And you can follow Jan on Twitter at Jan underscore Dukovic, D-U-T-K-E-W-I-C-Z. Spencer's writing focuses on greenwashing, ecology, energy, and agriculture, and can be found at Wired as well as the ja- as Jacobin and The Intercept. You may remember Spencer being on the show back in June to talk about his Intercept piece, Cry Wolf, Endangered Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery is being sabotaged by ranchers who claim the canines are killing cat- cattle and the federal employees who sign off on reports. Spencer is also a musician and an engineer. You can follow Spencer on Twitter at unpop underscore science. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new by you? Mm, not much. You know, I just don't know if you can tell by my personality, but... I'm not the most jolly person around the holidays, so. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. No. <laughs> that's, not, that's not that surprising. I used to uh, think that the holidays would, like, end a whole year of depression for me, and all of a sudden I'd be happy because of the holidays. And then when that didn't happen, I would get even more depressed that the holidays didn't make me happy either. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't help that it coincides with the darkest time of the year here yeah. in the northern hemisphere. That is true. <laughs> and I still just... I can't, you know, my my body was formed in Arizona where they don't have it. I never had to adjust before. To so the every darkness. Year, yeah, it, I just don't understand it. I don't like it. <laughs> but you, I bet you would love going to Sweden in the summer, though, because then it's, you know, the midnight sun. Would that drive you crazy, too? No, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Uh, my sister used to live in Seattle. It's like, it, it stays pretty bright there pretty late, too. But I just... You know, you can, it feels like you can do more stuff, like, when the sun's out, but, like, you know, here when it gets dark at 4 or 5 by, like, 7 p.m., I'm like, it's time for bed, (laughs) but it, I, which, I don't know, it could help, you have to wake up really early, too, to, like, use the sun, like, the sun still comes up at, like, 6.30, so if you sleep until, like, eight or nine you missed like 25 percent of the day you know and we're in the farthest the uh, most eastern part of the central time zone which makes it even worse uh friends a family of mine moved from chicago back to michigan just across the uh time zone line and they said they immediately loved it because when you're in the farthest western part of a time zone then you get more sun you farthest eastern part of a time zone then you get less sun so see that's just not fair Right, exactly. It's right across the border. <laughs> we can sense. see it happening. Exactly. <laughs> so, Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? Oh, I for- I'm sorry. <laughs> you got so caught up in the sun that you forgot about the question it's from a, hell. Yeah, you know, it's a seasonal depression. Fogs the mind. <laughs> it does. Uh, oh, mind fog. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> I don't know why there isn't a, a strain of uh, weed yet called brain fog. If somebody has not come up with that yet, you should do it now and then send me your royalties. Because it doesn't really sound that appetizing. No, I guess it doesn't. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) This week's question from Hell. What are you going to miss most about Twitter? (laughs) What are you going to miss most about Twitter? That would imply that you're actually going to miss something about Twitter. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter toque, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. And by the way, 
nothing makes a better holiday gift. Whatever holiday you happen to be celebrating, then this is Hell Merchandise. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email us, chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff discloses the identities of key crisis actors and their previous performance credits. That is all very tongue-in-cheek, by the way. I am certain of it. And apologies to everybody as I'm still suffering from the after effects of COVID that I suffered from for the last couple of weeks. Earlier this week, I mentioned how listener Aaron B. tweeted, for God's sakes, people, you go on about shows called silly things like Chapo Trap House and Jimmy Dore Show and the Young Turks, and I'm just like y'all are wasting your time. Those shows will never love you back. Harsh but true but this is hell, Will. Well, we got an email from Love. Love writes, hey, Chuck, first off, I want to share how nice it is to hear you back on the show after all your health troubles. Here is to hoping you stay healthy for your own sake, for those of your loved ones, and for this wonderful show for many years more. I wanted to suggest a guest to you, Kasun Delina Kariyawasam. That's K A R I. Y-A-W-A-S-A-M. He is one of the leading members of the Communist Party of Sri Lanka and was part of the previous government in Sri Lanka. I met him in Stockholm whilst a student and before his time in government, and as such have been privileged to get to know this very knowledgeable and astute political mind. Every time I speak with him, I learn tremendously about the political realities of his country and the West's relationship to it. And as such, I think his deep knowledge and insight on this and many other other subjects would also be enlightening for your listeners. If you need to get in touch with him or need any more information, don't hesitate to contact me. Love the show. Thank you for being a welcome companion in this hellish place we call the world in 2022. Signed, Love. P.S. You can find articles written by Kasun at themorning.lk, including one titled, How Sri Lanka Could Benefit from Policy-Oriented Banking. Thanks, Love. In that article at The Morning uh, that Love links us to, Kasun writes, Policy-guided banking is a system where credit is provisioned according to policy criterion set out by a central bank. In most cases, countries pursue a mixed policy with certain percentages of credit allocated for policy guidance and market guidance. Within the allocations for policy guidance, credit volumes can be prioritized for certain sectors and regions based on the capital composition of a country and its industrial development needs. Policy-guided banking is an effective method to kickstart infant industries as well as to tackle the diminishing returns of older industries, right? Sounds all great. Kassun continues, the idea of policy-guided banking was first developed in Germany's Reichsbank, the German central bank, now Deutsche Bundesbank, in 1913 as a means to develop productive industries and expand the uh, German economy. Germany in particular was motivated to pursue this credit facilitation policy in order to compete with countries with larger colonial surpluses. In the early 1900s, Germany's rate of profit in its industrial sector was failing compared to other industrial empires such as the UK and especially the United States. With the rise of the US as an industrial power, Germany had to develop its industrial cutting edge and was pushed to find new methods of expanding its manufacturing sector. Furthermore, 
Germany's surpluses in agriculture were not sufficient to refinance the industrial sector, even though agriculture was one of its main sources of credit. Imperialist Japan borrowed from that example that was set by Reichsbank. In Imperial Japan, credit policy was set by the emperor in consultation with state advisors in a method called enrich the country and strengthen the armed forces. In a nutshell, the Japanese had a policy goal of expanding industrialization and military power via credit guidance. So, hey, if it worked for pre-Great War Germany and Imperial Japan, maybe it can work for Sri Lanka. Love also directs us to Kasun's Substack, which you can find at Kasun Thalina, T-H-I-L-I-N-A dot Substack dot com, where he has an article titled The Four Pillars of Progressive Movement in a Post-Colonial Country. And you can find that at Kasun's Substack. And thanks to listener Aaron B. again, because not only did he recognize the love we have for our listeners, he also messaged us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio saying... I was reading through some of that mass reporting list of left accounts that has been circulating from right-wing outlets, and I wanted to make sure you knew your Twitter account is on there. I'm sorry I didn't take a screenshot, but it stood out to me. I was uh, reading through the screenshots posted by the Elm Fork James Brown Gun Club, James Brown, John Brown Gun Club, which has since been uh, suspended. I love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. And sure enough, Aaron of Slotton or Staunton, sorry, Staunton, Virginia, was correct. There we were on a shared list of supposedly leftist groups on Twitter. At first, I, I couldn't figure out why Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club would be targeting us and how a group with such a name and an acronym standing for John Brown Gun Club would be sharing such a list. After all, we have had plenty of abolitionists on our show, including yesterday's guest, uh, Austin McCoy, speaking positively about John Brown's abolitionism. That's when I saw the original tweet from Elm Fork JBGC, which states, Right-wingers are organizing a false mass report campaign of over 5,000 Twitter accounts in a blatant attempt to de-platform the left. Elm Fork JGBC wasn't trying to get us kicked off Twitter, although the publicity for the show of us getting kicked off Twitter would be fantastic. They were warning us that we were one of the thousands of allegedly leftist groups being targeted by fascists on Twitter. The, the fascist account that originally made the list has now been suspended. But again, we want to thank fascists for finally giving our show the recognition we so richly deserve. Thank you, dumb fascists. Coming up, Jan and Spencer will discuss meat producers' anti-climate change greenwashing. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, live from the United States, where we know the price of everything, but refuse to recognize the cost of anything. This is hell, and it seems the cost of cutting government funding of public education is a university system that depends so much on industry money that they have become promoters of industry-promoting science. The kind of science that gives cover for the private sector's contributions, accountability, and responsibility for contributing to climate change. Here to tell us how uh, meat producers are using the old big tobacco disinformation playbook as our planet burns, political economist Jan Dukovich and science writer Spencer Roberts wrote the New Republic article, How the Meat Industry Undermines Effective Climate Policy. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Jan. Hey, thanks for having me. And you actually got my last name pretty damn right, so uh, you did good. All right, thank you. I grew up on the uh, east side of Detroit, and it was a very Polish neighborhood, and I've, I always pride myself in being able to say Polish last names, and uh, I didn't really get it right this morning, so my apologies again. And welcome back to This Is Hell, Spencer. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks, Chuck. Good to be back. It's really great to have you back on the show. Uh, always, uh, you should be following uh, uh, Spencer on Twitter at unpop underscore science and follow Jan at Jan under, uh, underscore Dukovic. So let's start with you, Jan. The article starts just by saying the simple sentence. For years, meat producers have worked furiously behind the scenes to keep meat re- reduction out of discussions on climate policy. So Jan, how much does the public recognize meat producers' role in fomenting opposition to anti-climate change reforms? I mean, I can understand that they would recognize their impact on deforestation and how deforestation can have an impact on climate change. But how much do you think people recognize that meat producers are actively, furiously working behind the scenes to uh, have an impact on climate policy? Well, I don't think people actually know this. In fact, I think that uh, in large, in part because of what Spencer and I wrote about in the article, I don't think that many people actually connect food production in general and meat production specifically to anthropogenic climate change. And so, and, and this is, in a sense, this is the political story we're trying to tell in the article, which is that um, since, I mean, for decades, but especially since the release of the United uh, Nations Food and Agriculture Organization's Livestock's Long Shadow Report, it's been clear that there's a direct link between emissions from animal agriculture and global warming. Uh, so uh, the statistics, of course, differ a little bit based on the calculations. The sort of standard number that's used is that livestock contribute about 14.5% of uh, total anthropogenic gases. And so you've got an industry that is, well, whose product is consumed by the vast majority of people uh, on the planet that's consumed in massive quantities, especially in the global north, places like the United States, where the average consumer eats about 220 pounds of meat uh, every single year. And you've got, so you've got most people being complicit in some degree of anthropogenic climate change because they buy the products that's produced by this industry that all of a sudden now there's there's emerging uh, scientific proof. And I would say that now we're pretty much at a scientific consensus that this industry is a contributor to anthropogenic climate change. And so, I mean, I'm sure you have questions about this coming up. And so this is the question, why don't people know this? Why isn't this top of mind? And I think Part of the reason, and part of the reason that Spencer and I try to explain in the article and that both Spencer and I explain in our, in our separate uh, sort of bodies of work, is that the meat industry has looked at best practice, if you will, from the past, which is primarily looking to the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry, to see how they can try to mitigate uh, both public knowledge about their links to uh, climate change, as well as all kinds of other environmental harms but also mitigate people changing their habits or be becoming involved politically to sort of constrain or regulate the industry in the name of uh, in the name of sort of mitigating climate change right and so that's the story we're trying to tell but to answer your initial question i think for most people this isn't a top of mind issue and it's absolutely in the industry's interest to ensure that it stays not a top of mind issue well, before we get to Spencer, Jan, let me just follow up on that. You said that this has to do with meat production, but in general, this has to do with the way that we produce all of our foodstuffs throughout all of agriculture. Is this not just limited to meat production? Can this actually, can there be contributions to climate change that's done by agriculture that is focused on non-meat production, that can focus on uh, vegetable production, for instance? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So there was a paper recently that came out in Nature Food that estimates that if you look at a uh, full life cycle, so behind the farm gate, through consumption, through or through transportation, through consumption, through waste, and so on and so forth, that the agricultural sector makes up about a third of total global GAG emissions. But the meat industry just happens to be the largest contributor to that. And this is for uh, two primary reasons. The first reason is that ruminants raised for uh, meat, so uh, you know, cows, uh, sheep, and so on and so forth, uh, due to the nature of their digestion, they emit methane in their burps. So they emit a very potent, very rapid, very sort of rapidly warming gas when they when they burp so those creatures like the animals themselves are contributors to uh climate change and then moreover uh you have to feed animals um especially animals who are uh i mean be it grazing animals but in order to feed them you have to have land available to feed them which often involves land clearing which is to say potentially doing things like getting rid of wetlands or uh deforesting thereby both uh emitting carbon and killing potential um, sites of carbon storage in order to allow grazing animals to graze, or in the case of animals raised in concentrated animal feeding operations, so CAFOs or uh, what we call factory farms. So this would be 97, 98% of all the chicken eaten in the US, for instance, uh, well over 90% of the pigs. You have to grow crops and feed crops to those animals, which has its own set of emissions. Then those animals, of course, have to digest those crops as they're digesting them while they're still alive. Those animals, of course, create uh, feces, right? They go to the bathroom. Uh, those feces are kept in what are so what are known as manure lagoons, which are exactly what they sound like, giant lagoons full of uh, animal manure. And then when that manure decomposes, it also emits methane, right? And then those animals are slaughtered and fed and so on and so forth. So just due to the nature of animal production and due to the relative inefficiency of having to keep animals alive for a certain amount of uh, weeks when it comes to chickens, months when it comes to hogs, uh, a year and a bit when it comes to, uh, to cattle, you've got these cumulative emissions that don't exist in other forms of producing uh, protein calories. So, Spencer, you and Jan write that the first draft of the 2021 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report on climate change mitigation recommended shifting to plant-based diets and agricultural systems. Delegates dispatched by then-Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, who presided over a mass burning of the Amazon rainforest in part by beef producers, helped get that phrase removed. So, Spencer, how much influence do industries that profit from contributing to climate change have on policy recommendations by the IPCC? Because I don't remember corporate lobbyists being a part of the story when I've seen or read it in uh, coverage in the news. I've only seen it as criticism by those who are fighting against climate change, by environmental activists. So how much is IPCC policy influenced by those who profit from contributing to climate change, because I, I just have never heard, you know, it's something some of our guests have talked about on our show before, but the influence of industry on environmental policy, which you would think would be far more objective and not really being concerned with profits, that that, that wouldn't be, it wouldn't have such an influence on the policy. So how much influence does the private sector that profits from climate change 
have on uh, things like the COP27 that's going on? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's hard to kind of quantify that influence. But when we're talking about sort of what happened with the extraction of that term plant-based agricultural system, plant-based diets, is sort of how the IPCC's reports are distilled into these policy uh, documents for recommendations for policymakers. And every country sends uh, delegates to sort of um, you know, negotiate that process and exactly what those documents are going to look like. So for instance, in that same document, uh, other communications revealed that Saudi Arabia, for instance, was trying to get language removed about rapid phase-outs of fossil fuel, right? And so when we look at countries like Brazil, we have huge corporations like JBS, the Batista family, which has immense influence in the Brazilian government, still does, even though uh, the election has sort of changed the party in power. Throughout the Congress, JBS has incredible influence in Brazilian politics and in United States politics as well. Uh, they were one of the companies that were in the uh, leaked emails that revealed that the industry ghost wrote Trump's executive order that exempted uh, slaughterhouses from COVID shutdowns. And JBS controls something like 20% of the hog and cow market in the United States. So uh, their influence is huge and it's very much behind the scenes. So it's hard to put a number on it and quantify it exactly. People are always trying to uh, find out how many lobbyists are in these uh, meetings like COP27, and we're getting better at tracking those numbers and that influence, but we're always sort of playing catch up because the activity is not very transparent. And you both write that we know that there were more fossil fuel lobbyists than delegates for any country at the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change 26 or COP26. And you link to a story from uh, that's posted at corporateaccountability.org. And that's a number has and that number has con, uh, you know continued to increase further at this year's COP27. And you link to a story at globalwitness.org that reports that it's harder to run the number of those representing the meat industry. Their influence, however, is evident. So, Jan, why is it harder to run the numbers on how many meat industry lobbyists are at or have had an influence on COP26 and 27? Is the meat industry being purposely clandestine, and are they simply better at being covert than the fossil fuel industry is? Let me actually jump in on this one, because something interesting, uh, since we published the article uh, came out, DSmog did a, uh, an investigation on the number of ag lobbyists actually at COP27, and they found that it doubled from 76 in 2021 to 160 this year. Um, their methods are a little bit different. Uh, they use, I think, the official registrations, whereas the global witness numbers use name matching in terms of people that have been associated with fossil fuel lobbying in the past. So there are cases where fossil fuel lobbyists become representatives for countries in some capacity. And we can imagine that's probably the case for ag lobbyists as well. So um, the way that DSmog puts it is at least 160 this year, um, presumably even higher. But uh, since we wrote the article, just wanted to say we actually do have some more approximate numbers to put on that. 
So, Jan, do you think that the meat industry is better at hiding their influence than the fossil fuel industry? Or is it the media and the public's attention that obviously would focus on fossil fuel production more than it might over meat production? I mean, I think I think it's the latter. I think that in general, the agriculture tends to uh, fly under the radar a little bit when it comes to discussions of climate or these big or sort of where the media trains their lens at these large climate events. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't think there's, they're particularly more cloak and dagger or uh, particularly more effective at hiding their, their, uh, their influence. I just think people aren't necessarily looking. And one other thing that I will say is that when you talk about representatives of the quote unquote uh, meat industry, which is perhaps not how we should be phrasing this, you're talking about people who work in, Pesticides, you're talking about people who also often are attached to uh, attached to government or sort of peripherally working for departments of agriculture and so on and so forth. So I suppose there's a there's a there can be a little bit more equivocation between whether a person's, you know, whether they're working for a crop and pesticide company or for a government or for the meat industry, rather than simply flying the flag of a of a fossil fuel uh sort of a fossil fuel company that they're affiliated with. You two also point out that the plan President Biden announced on Friday, November 11th at this year's COP27, which to its credit is putting food on the agenda, set specific goals for energy, but was conspicuously vague on agriculture. The president merely said he intended to expand the country's domestic programs for, quote, climate smart agriculture globally. And anytime I hear smart policy, that's a huge red flag for me. Domestic programs that Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack has previously said would not require any reduction in meat production. So I guess this is both of you, but let's start with Spencer. In the U.S., how politically popular or unpopular is fighting climate change through meat uh, reduction? Because this, this sounds like, and if you'll excuse the stupid pun, red meat for people like Fox News and conservative radio talk shows and the climate change denying far right. So, Spencer, how politically unpopular would it be to say we need to reduce uh, the amount of meat that we eat? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely an element of public backlash. And of course, that's amplified in media, especially ones that have ties to interests that want the system to stay as it is. But, you know, in a sense, I think it's not as unpopular as we might get the impression. Um, But it's certainly very unpopular in the uh, upper echelons of politics and at the policy table where these discussions take place. So basically, Biden's uh, methane plan that he brought to COP27, which is uh, unfortunately getting sort of expanded to a global uh, operation, is this uh, program in the United States that they call AIM4C, AIM for Climate, Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate, which I think is a great acronym because it's it's just aiming, right? It's not actually pulling the trigger. So uh, what it essentially does is the way that we set up our goals for fossil fuels and for the waste sector and things like that have specific benchmarks and specific uh, targets that these industries are supposed to hit, whether or not that's enforced very well is a different question. 
But there are some sticks involved, essentially, when we talk about fossil fuel policy. When we look at ag, it's a total double standard and everything is carrots. So we're looking at things like incentivizing, um, and we talk about this in the article, incentivizing methane digesters and giving renewable energy credits for generating uh, cow manure. We're looking at things like uh, you know, putting methane masks on cows or feeding them some seaweed and maybe reducing their uh, methane uh, generation a little bit, or giving uh, carbon farming credits for you know regenerative uh, cattle practices, putting some fences around and moving the cows a little bit more. But there's not really uh, much verification or scrutiny going on with those programs. So um, the yeah, it's very unpopular at, in politics, and the way that that manifests is basically all incentives at no sticks or uh, specific benchmarks that we're expecting or requiring agricultural corporations to match. So Jan, uh, just to expand on that a little bit, uh, how much is climate change then our fault? We love caraculture. We love to eat meat. Is that a distraction from the bigger, more systemic problems, or is it our individual choice that we want to drive a car and we want to eat a burger? So that's a very good question, but it's not quite how I'd phrase the question, because I think creating when it comes to uh, mass consumption of consumer goods, I think framing it in terms of a very strict binary between strictly individual choice and sort of strictly this being a systemic problem isn't quite correct, right? So in a, in a capitalist consumer economy, there's a lot of push and pull between, between these factors, right? So companies will produce what they think they can sell profitably, they will then do their best to get that product in front of consumers via merchandising, via marketing, via making sure it's there, via pricing, via uh, ensuring that regulations support the sale of that product. But then, of course, consumers don't consume products in a sort of individual hermetically sealed vacuum. So consumers are influenced by advertising, they're influenced by cultural trends, they're influenced by social cues, they're influenced by price, they're influenced by taste and habit. So there's a, there's sort of like a, I don't want to use too academic a term, but there's sort of like a co-production of demand and taste, right? So I think, I think saying that it's strictly the companies that sort of force feed Americans gas guzzling cars and uh, highly emitting beef is not quite right. And suggesting that all the blame should be on consumers for making sort of environmentally poor on un unethical choices is also incorrect. I think we have a particular set of dynamics in the market that incentivizes uh, consumers as a whole. So as a whole bunch of individuals to participate in the consumption of goods that are environmentally harmful. And I think it's, then the industry does everything it can to ensure that that consumption continues so that they can, uh, yeah, so that they can extract profit off the sale of those goods. And so, so I think that uh, there is definitely an argument to be made that consumers should, uh, where possible and practicable, seek to make uh, more, let's say, sustainable consumer choices. 
Uh, but I also think that there are many products for which there simply uh, shouldn't be a market or the market or where the market should be far more regulated. So I have, but as per your previous question to Spencer, this is extremely difficult because the regulation of some things, such as, for instance, um, ultimately consumer-facing goods like meat is extremely problematic. It's problematic because uh, very often restricting consumer goods is a bit of a political non-starter. People really don't like the government telling them how to spend their money or what they can and can't do or can and can't eat, for one. And for two, trying to uh, ratchet that up to a more uh, so, sort of systemic intervention becomes a real political problem, especially uh, when it, at the state level, because there are a number of states that rely a lot on agriculture and where the agricultural lobby is extremely strong. And so attempts to then introduce regulation, uh, so sort of sticks rather than carrots, as Spencer so well put it, becomes very difficult because then there's immediate pushback of uh, claims of government overreach and government interference in state level economies, which of course fuels uh, a sort of specific anti-government often uh, I don't necessarily want to make this a party thing, but uh, often Republican pushback to uh, to ag regulations. So it's uh, it's what you'd call a wicked problem. And so uh, Spencer, so is is the answer? Artificial plant-based meat does uh, artificial meat production take any less climate make uh, you know any less climate change contributing any energy consumption than non-artificial meat production because that seems to be the way that the industry at least is trying to sell it to us right now that artificial meat is what's probably or what is the way that we can address the problems of meat consumption and now we just see these reports in the last week that uh, these kind of like impossible burgers and artificial meat that is in the market those sales are dropping drastically people were interested when it was first introduced to the public but it seems like those sales have been dropping so is a, a, a Aside from the fact that people don't seem to be all that crazy about these products, uh, is just artificial meat the answer, Spencer? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is in terms of those, so it's the stocks that are really dropping. And that's the thing that we're looking at. And whether that's a reflection of people's uh, attitudes is sort of uh, up in the air. I mean, it certainly is. There's definitely a backlash. But uh, even though we have some uh, meat corporations investing in whether it's veggie burgers or cultivated meat, um, the vast majority of the industry is lobbying against these products. That's something that uh, we should make clear. So, um, yeah, when we look at producing a veggie burger like a Beyond Burger or cultivating a burger in a lab, we're talking about 90% or uh, more of a reduction in land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions, and something like half the energy. So if we can produce meat or meat alternatives in this way, uh, that is certainly something that uh, a lot of climate scientists and ecologists are promoting. And that's part of the uh, discussion that's going on at the IPCC and that's sort of being buried in these policy reports. Um, it's a little bit different when we talk about, um, you know, the consumer factor and how they're adopted. But the big thing to realize, and I think to keep at top of mind, is that 
we are subsidizing uh, the animal industries to an insane degree. Uh, Many of them are not profitable um, in their own right. And so they're essentially propped up by state planning. So when we look at the dairy industry, for instance, this, uh, these new methane uh, renewable energy credits, uh, some of the dairy factories have been running these calculations saying, wow, we're actually making more money off the cow manure now than the milk. And so they're considering milk the byproduct of generating this uh, manure for these renewable energy credits. And those credits don't really take into account the emissions from the cows in the first place, from the land use, the water pollution, from the uh, you know f- leaking of these facilities. So scientists are very clear that we need to rapidly and dramatically scale down the meat industry and whether uh, you know veggie burgers or cultivated meat are tools to achieve that or uh, you know just other promoting more whole foods and things like that which are also a, a great option and probably more healthy uh, I think both of those uh, strategies are important and should be pursued we are speaking with political economist Jan Dukevich and science writer Spencer Roberts, who co-wrote the New Republic article, How the Meat Industry Undermines Effective Climate Policy. I want to just follow up on what Spencer was just saying with you, Jan. Uh, you were saying how, and as uh, Spencer was as well, how the, uh, it's a political non-starter when the government comes in and steps in and says, this is what you can and can't eat. This is what you can and can't drive. Those are political non-starters. Why do, uh, why do we not recognize that those subsidies are the the government telling us what we can and can't eat, what we can and can't drive. Why don't we recognize subsidies as a way in which the government interferes with our personal consumer choices? I mean, the short answer is that uh, a lot of people don't quite know exactly where most of the commodities, I mean, this goes for everyone, most of the, you know, it's very difficult to pin down exactly where the commodities that you consume come from or where exactly their price comes from, how their price is determined. And with things like subsidies, so Spencer mentioned subsidies and people say this a lot and it's not wrong, but it's also very difficult to identify specific subsidies that achieve specific ends. Uh, So it's very difficult to, for instance, say, all right, like pork costs X because of X amount of subsidies. Because there are different forms of interventions and subsidies throughout the entire agricultural value chain, right? So, for instance, a lot of government, quote unquote, uh, subsidies come in the form of crop insurance for crop producers, which ends up being if those crop producers sell to meat producers a sort of indirect subsidy for meat. But you can't get rid of that crop insurance without doing considerable harm to the nature of American crop production or, for instance, uh, counties or municipalities where um, concentrated animal feeding operations or uh, industrialized uh, slaughterhouses are cited might give uh, tax breaks or um, environmental enforcement breaks, be it uh, explicit or tacit ones to those companies. Again, how do you, how do you monetize that? And then how do you downstream figure out exactly to what extent that affects um, pricing? Or how do you price in decades of publicly funded research at land grant institutions designed to create uh, more efficient or higher yield uh, 
animals for meat or crops for, right? And so, I mean, I could keep talking about this and give you examples, but what I'm trying to get at is that there is a very complex uh, assemblage, if you will, of factors going into this. So it's very difficult to then for the average consumer to say, oh, um, like the government is de facto making this chicken I'm eating extremely cheap because of, you know, 70 years of very diffuse and diverse and complex subsidies and support for agricultural R&D and siting of um, production facilities and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the short answer is it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Spencer, you write, uh, you and Jan write that one of the most effective tactics employed by the meat lobby is the use of creative accounting methods to obscure its climate impact. Because some greenhouse gases are stronger than others when quantifying emissions, climatologists use a quotient called global warming potential, or GWP, to boil everything down to a single figure, carbon dioxide equivalent, or CO2e. Since gases like methane contribute to rapid heating but break down in the atmosphere, GWP changes depending on the time frame. For instance, while the global warming potential of methane over 100 years, GWP 100, is 28 times that of carbon dioxide over 20 years, methane is approximately 86 times as powerful as CO2. So in 20 years, it's 86 times as powerful. In 100 years, it's 28 times as powerful. The 100-year figure is what's typically cited by industry, but many climatologists assert that this downplays the importance of reducing methane and nitrous oxide pollution in the immediate future, as we don't have a century to stop climate change. So, Spencer, what would happen if we ignored methane production in the short term? And can that damage be mitigated by methane's decreasing impact over time? Uh, I think we're pretty much running that experiment now. We are really not making progress and not prioritizing the reduction of methane emissions uh, in general. And, you know, we could argue the same thing about CO2, but methane is very interesting. And nitrous oxide falls in the same category of transient gases, right, that break down in the atmosphere. So the uh, meat industry is putting a lot of energy and resources into this push to use this new metric called GWP star, which is used for modeling. And basically, it's great for uh, modeling temperature response to greenhouse gases. But what it essentially means is that if a corporation has the same amount of cows as last year, they get to put a zero in their uh, column for methane emissions, or at least the radiative forcing from methane. So obviously, that's uh, not a good way or an appropriate way to report or account for emissions from corporations, industries, or countries. But this is what the uh, industry is pushing for. Um, Whereas on the other side, we have climatologists saying we need to actually use the 20-year time frame for global warming potential because that's a much more accurate portrayal of the time we have to do something about methane. And what's interesting about it is while there's a, while there is a, stable level of methane in the atmosphere, the temperature won't change. If it increases, it'll go up. But if it decreases, unlike CO2, the temperature will actually drop. So we could actually achieve planetary cooling by rapidly cutting methane. And that's why it's one of the most important focuses of climate policy. And that's why the meat industry is in there trying to muddy the waters and convince not only policymakers, but the public that uh, it's not really a big deal. 
Let's so Jan, uh, I think we were mentioning this earlier. You write, you and uh, Spencer write that the second line of defense that the meat industry has been promoting focuses on technological fixes for the environmental damage caused by livestock. In the case of methane, the industry has rushed to fund, as you were saying, research into seaweed-based feed additives for cows aimed at reducing the methane produced by their digestive systems. But while industry pilot studies estimated the emissions reduction potential of such additives as high as 80% of the at the feedlot stage. They didn't mention that this translates to life cycle admissions cuts of only around 9%. The industry is quick to drum up positive press to suggest that all it will take is to make cows climate friendly in some algae or methane capturing masks for cows. But these fixes are far from being widely viable or scalable. And I know this gets back to the politics of it, and we don't. I don't really want to make this into a partisan discussion, just like you do not want to as well, Jan. Uh, but they are also, these, these kinds of reforms, if you will, are also the targets of mockery by those on the far right who are in climate change denialism. Are these efforts, in your opinion, Jan, purposely ineffective and uh, essentially vulnerable to mockery? So that's a great question, but it's also a great set of questions. But first, uh, I want to zoom out a little bit to contextualize um, the GWP thing and the Technofix thing and the greenwashing and contextualize why this is important. So as we just talked about, uh, changing what is produced and what people consume is difficult. But the first step to that is having valid science or something achieving a currently existing or something approximating rather a currently existing uh, relative scientific consensus about what causes harm and how and to what extent. And so, so we've now got an increasing body of science that shows, as we just uh, talked about, that uh, animal production contributes let's say 14 and a half, 15% of global GHG emissions. Uh, there's an increasing body of uh, research and prescriptions suggesting that the best way to mitigate the GHG emissions of meat production is quite simply to minimize uh, to the extent possible meat production and reduction. So in the face of this sort of emerging consensus, which could theoretically get in front of consumers and in front of policymakers and become something you have to address the way with tobacco, we eventually had to address the fact that uh, both smoking cigarettes and secondhand smoke was carcinogenic. The way we are starting to address and really have to reckon with the fact that burning more fossil fuels contributes to global warming. This is where we are we're sort of at this formational stage with meat and so what the meat industry is doing is taking a page from the tobacco and the oil playbook to find ways to muddy the science so to suggest that the science is actually still out that we need more research to sort of uh not so much deny the science but engage in what in the article spencer and i call active perpetual equivocation or to suggest that there are fixes uh, to the problems created by the meat industry that can either be applied to the meat industry or perhaps even the meat industry itself is already solving these problems. So the whole point of all these tactics, be it GWP, be it methane reduction technologies, be it greenwashing, is to prevent policymakers and the public from engaging directly with this emerging consensus that we quite simply need to uh, regulate and reduce meat production and consumption. 
So with that contextualized, yeah, uh, the meat industry, I think, is very uh, interested. And I think there are all kinds of researchers at all kinds of universities that, uh, I mean, that are very honestly committed to trying to find ways to reduce methane emission from meat production without having to reduce meat production. But what happens with things like this, like, for instance, uh, seaweed-based feed additives for cows. So, yes, there are certain, uh, certain algae that if you mix them with cow feed, will reduce cows' methane emissions in their burps uh, to a certain extent. So in very small prototypical trials, you, there are sort of at like university experimental farms, there are publications that suggest that, yeah, maybe you can reduce uh, cattle's methane emissions while they're on a feedlot by 80%. And then this gets disseminated to the media. The media very often runs with these stories very credulously, just saying, wow, like amazing techno fix to the problem of cow's methane emission. Maybe your burger could be carbon friendly after all, and so on and so forth. But this misses the fact that these fixes are A, uh, in the prototype stage. So we've got well over a billion cows on the planet. You've got maybe a couple hundred cows, maybe a couple thousand cows being fed these additives. There's no question of how to scale it. How, how do you get these additives to cows that aren't on feedlots, so, but on cows that are actually on pasture? None of these questions are addressed. So when you actually run the numbers for sort of on a life cycle basis, then rather than the 80% that's being heralded by all kinds of media and by the meat industry, you've actually got maybe more like an 8, 9, 10% decrease. And that's only in the cows to whom you feed the seaweed additives, which right now are like 0.00001% of cows globally, right? So the idea is to sell the idea of the techno fix to the public rather than actually even implement the techno fix universally, which even if it was done universally is still um, a far, sort of puts a far smaller dent in emissions than you would otherwise have. So the point is these techno fixes are basically non-starters. Uh, do I think that they're, to wrap uh, my answer up, uh, do I think that they're purposely disseminated to draw mockery? No, I don't think that's the case. And as I said, I think there are all kinds of researchers at universities who very firmly believe in their mission and who are doing good science trying to actually uh, reduce methane emissions. I just think that they these techno fixes fall in this weird space where people who actually sort of recognize the scale of the problem think they're a non-starter and therefore are nonsense and people who are climate deniers who already would deny the fact that um cattle uh contribute via their uh, methane emissions contribute to anthropogenic uh climate change i mean i think these people just think it's silly right and they're going to mock it anyway and so i think this is the this is sort of the unfortunate space within which these techno fixes fall if I can just chime in another really interesting antidote along that same line, uh, a part of this story we haven't talked about at all yet is the uh, Clear Center established at UC Davis by the uh, agricultural lobby. And they basically built this big PR outfit and uh, promoted a lot of these solutions in the media. And uh, these internal documents revealed their funding and their strategies. And one of the things that came up was during uh, during the big media push around this, these seaweed additives, uh, Burger King made this ad where they got the like yodeling Walmart kid, right, to like sing about cow farts, and uh, it, you know, it was really, uh, you know, stupid and mockable, and a bunch of people were making fun of it, and these. Uh, industry-funded professors and lobbyists were going back and forth really frustrated and actually angry about how this was being covered in the media and that it was being uh, 
treated so trivially. I was actually going to ask you about that kind of triviality when it comes to just saying that this is all about uh, cow farts. But uh, you but this uh, situation with the clear organization or the clear center at UC Davis, Spencer, you tweeted in early November. This is a bombshell. Uh, the Exxon New moment for the meat industry, an animal agribusiness association founded and funded a PR outfit at a public university. They used it to spread in, in, in disinformation and convince governments to delay climate action. How so? How big of a role are public universities, Spencer, how, uh, that are desperate for resources because of cuts to education uh, spending? How big of a role are the corporations now uh, funding uh, universities to legitimize their own interests? How big of a role are they playing in the debate over climate change, not only in the U.S., but that disinformation being exported abroad and affecting the global debate over climate change? Is, Spencer, the privatization of public education leading to illegitimate debates over, in this case, climate change? Yes, absolutely. And the, and the role they play, uh, one way to measure it, we could look at the ratio of industry funding to government funding in agricultural research. And uh, in just the past couple years, that ratio flipped actually in favor, in the United States at least, uh, in favor of agricultural funding. So we actually have more agricultural corporations or more funding from agricultural corporations in uh, agricultural research than we do from the government. So obviously we have a huge conflict of interest there. And we see very clearly, like with this example of this uh, feed lobby group, iFeeder and uh, the UC Davis Clear Center, how when the industry is able to design the studies, they're able to frame the debate and they're also able to sort of get the results they want. So we saw this clear center pumping out these myths about things like GWP star and how it's a much more accurate way to measure greenhouse gas emissions about biogenic methane, right? How methane from cows is part of a natural cycle and it doesn't heat the planet uh, about how we need to invest in these uh, methane biodigesters and uh, how, about how we need to give uh, carbon credits for regenerative agriculture. Uh, I wrote a recent article in a Jacobin where I traced more than $25 million from agricultural corporations to public universities and in popular films promoting uh, ranching as a solution to climate change just by moving cows around and using these regenerative practices, which the scientific consensus is very much, uh, very much finding the opposite in terms of the results. So the agricultural funding is enormously impacting uh, the science that's coming out and it's making it very hard because the results, whether you believe it or you don't, it sort of compromises the integrity of science and that's a good result for them as well. So it's a win-win for the industry when they fund agricultural research. Jan, you and Spencer also write that in 2017, industry finance overtook public grants to fund the majority of research in the United States for the first time in almost a century. The corporate long game to supplant public science has succeeded in transforming not only the output, but the culture of academia. You then cite a science.org story, which states that this flies in the face of conventional wisdom, which paints U.S. companies as so focused on short-term profits that they have all but abandoned the pursuit of fundamental knowledge. By extension, then, Jan, has the U.S. abandoned the pursuit of fundamental knowledge for short-term industrial policies or uh, profits? Can, can this abandoning of the pursuit of fundamental knowledge by handing over the majority of scientific research grants, 
in industry to industry finance be undone? After all, this is a 2017 policy under the Trump administration. So first, has the U.S. abandoned the pursuit of fundamental knowledge for short-term industrial policies uh, or profits, uh, Jan? And can this be undone by the Biden administration? Yeah, sorry, I've got some I've got some noise in the background, so hopefully that doesn't get in the way too much here. Um, so, look, you've got a really unfortunate situation in academia where people who work, especially on questions related to issues related to industry, this isn't just in food. Um, often, you like you need funding to run studies, and often it's possible. There's that noise I mentioned. Often it's possible to get um, funding from industry in order to pursue research that is both academically valid, but that also benefits industry. The problem, however, is when industry starts looking for particular research outcomes or particular research findings that compromise the academic enterprise. And so Marion Nessel, who's a sort of really foundational food scholar. She's at NYU. She's written about this in the case of, for instance, nutrition studies. And so, but then the second problem is when industry funds not just research, so not just, for instance, attempts to reduce the methane from cattle, but de facto starts funding um, communications groups or starts treating research and researchers and research centers they fund not just as research centers, but as communication centers that are disseminating industry-funded research and messages that are beneficial to industry. And I think that that's where we start seeing uh, a lot of these problems, because the question then becomes, are the researchers doing this research just disinterested researchers who happen to be taking money from industry because they need that money in order to do their research, or are they basically becoming talking heads for the industry, which is exactly what we saw with uh, the fossil fuels. And there's actually a phenomenal book by the historians Eric Conway and Nomi Oreskes called Merchants of Doubt, specifically about this sort of capture of uh, researchers and public intellectuals by the fossil fuel industry in the case of the debate over fossil fuels uh, contribution to anthropogenic climate change. Uh, the question of can it be reversed is is a tricky one. Um, I mean, it would require the government to step in much more with much more funding for basic science and all kinds of, and more funding for public universities, but also presumably it would require regulations or university policies that would vet uh, corporate donations for research much more strongly. But of course that flies in the face of the fact that uh, corporate donations look good and a lot of universities rely on them. So yet again, uh, yet again, we have a wicked problem. Yeah, yet again, it's complicated. Uh, Spencer, yeah. <laughs> Spencer, you write, you and Jan write that when the science became unequivocal that cigarettes and their secondhand smoke were carcinogenic, the tobacco industry sought to challenge these findings, funding its own research and lobbying to cast out by the emerging scientific consensus. This delay in meaningful regulation likely caused millions of avoidable deaths. These tactics of delay and agnotology, deliberate ignorance rather than the organic absence of knowledge, were picked up by the fossil fuel 
industry, which has regularly employed lobbyists and scientists to challenge the consensus on the role of fossil fuels in driving climate change. But Spencer, in the end, the tobacco industry was revealed to have willfully misled the public, purposely injecting disinformation into the debate. They were then heavily fined for their purposeful misrepresentation that killed millions of people who would not have died if the industry had not engaged in a campaign of lying to the public, while the industry was massively fined. No individual was ever prosecuted. Spencer, as the tobacco industry took a huge financial hit from lying to the public and Congress and were forced to pay for an anti-tobacco information campaign, you would think that would be a deterrent to future industry lies to the public. Spencer, are fines, even those as big as the ones that big uh, tobacco forced to pay, are they just not a deterrent? And if someone from big tobacco had been prosecuted and even was jailed, do you think that would have any more of an impact on future lying by industry? Yes, absolutely. Uh, fines are very famously worked into the books these days of massive corporations. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, in the case of uh, meat production, whether it's water pollution, um, air pollution, things like that. Whatever. And to be clear, they have most. Uh, slaughterhouses in the all slaughterhouses in the u.s are exempt from the clean water act um the fines you know we think like the bp oil spill right uh a fraction of their annual profits like they made more money drilling in the gulf than they did uh than they were fined so what's the deterrent it's it's really just sort of like another cost to mark onto the books so yeah our it sort of goes into the uh, sticks and carrots um, analogy, but of course we don't really use sticks on fossil fuel either or tobacco for that matter. But certainly I do believe that there are, you know, people at the highest uh, echelons of these companies, executives that uh, have committed crimes against humanity and could be tried under those uh, auspices. And, you know, we could, talk about, you know, that, you know, millions of deaths caused by tobacco, if we could make an analogy with meat, whether it's from the deaths from uh, cardiac related dietary illness, uh, pandemics, uh, the burning of the Amazon, the genocide of the Amazonian people, uh, or just the climate chaos engulfing low lying nations and cities, uh, there, there's certainly a culpability with uh, unnecessary death in the, uh, meat industry, not to mention the animals. So um, I do think there's a case to bring against the executives. One last question for each of you. We have been speaking with political economist Jan Dukevich and science writer Spencer Roberts, who co-wrote the New Republic article, How the Meat Industry Undermines Effective Climate Policy. Spencer may remember this, but Jan, you may not know. We end each and every one of our interviews with what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Jan, we're going to start with you, then we'll go to Spencer. Jan, you write, you and Spencer write that factory farms and industrial feedlots by concentrating thousands of animals in confined spaces also create massive manure lagoons, as you were mentioning before, that both generate methane and leach into or are outright dumped into waterways, contributing to the so-called dead zones expanding from river deltas. But while scientists stress the need to reduce animal waste, the industry has succeeded in securing lucrative tax exemptions for increasing it, touting the ostensible environmental benefits of refining manure into methane biogas, turning waste into an income stream. 
So, Jan, do these tax exemptions get bipartisan support? Can tax exemptions for increasing animal waste and the methane it contributes to the environment and contributes to climate change, can those be voted out of office? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the short answer. It just requires uh, it requires organization and getting the political will to take on powerful industries like agriculture and like um, and like gas. And so here we've got the sort of unholy alliance in the case of biogas of the gas industry and the agriculture industry, realizing that they have a mutually beneficial income stream. And so organizing against that requires uh, convincing policymakers to basically have the guts to stand up to these two industries in the name of uh, the environment and in the name of public health. So it can be voted out of office if the one of the parties were to change their support for the tax exemption through organizing outside of the more genuine, genu- uh, general or regular legislative process. It needs organizing. Is that what you're saying, Jan? Yeah, I mean, it needs organizing or it needs... Uh, I mean, if I can just be frank, it just needs policymakers who will listen to the science and who are willing to even use the normal standard legislative process to fight against these industries, which they should if (laughs) they're indeed representatives who care about public health and environmental health and future generations of their constituents. All right, Spencer, my question from hell is you and Jan closed the article by saying the good news is that we know the strategy of meat producers. The bad news is that we're running out of time. I know you're going to hate this question from hell, Spencer. How much time do we have before the effects of climate change will make it nearly impossible to address climate change? I don't know exactly, and I'm not sure anyone does. Um, I was hoping you had a date you could tell. (laughs) So it's an interesting framing when we talk about sometimes we hear climate change described in terms of like a countdown to quote unquote, irreversible impacts. And I really hate that framing because we're way past that point, right? We're, and we're not just talking about climate change too. And that's another important thing I think to bring up is I think we have a tendency to get carbon tunnel vision as it's uh, sometimes described where in this article, we definitely focus on the climate, but there are so many other impacts of this industry and other industries on just habitat destruction, water pollution, the introduction of like environmental toxicity and it's affecting our bodies and our ecosystems in all these different ways. Uh, We're losing species to extinction every day, you know, so that's not reversible. So the irreversible impacts are here. It's a matter now of mitigating them and trying to stop them and save as much as we can. And I think when we approach the problem from that perspective, we can hopefully develop strategies that don't discourage people from getting, you know, unreasonable hopes. And we can sort of look at the problem with a sober mind and uh, approach it from uh, a perspective of just saving what we can and doing everything we can to look out for each other. And uh, one of those things is definitely scaling down the meat industry. There's no question. Jan, I want to first thanks, thank you for this is your uh, first appearance on our show. And I really appreciate it. And I'm going to stay in contact with you because uh, your future writing or if you have any suggestions for guests on the show, please get in contact with us. So thank you, Jan, for being on the show. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And Spencer, thanks for being back on the show. You know I'm going to irritate you an email for the rest of your life to get you to come back on on a regular basis. Looking forward to it, Chuck. <laughs> All right. I love annoying you. All right. Take care. <laughs> Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. If what you just heard from Jan and Spencer on big eggs, climate change, greenwashing, if that was in some way enlightening or made you just realize, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or just go to thisishell.com and click on support where you can see all of the ways you can support This Is Hell, including getting This Is Hell merchandise, which is awesome holiday gifts. There's nothing better than sitting around with family, unwrapping holiday gifts, and all of a sudden somebody gives you a hat that says, This Is Hell on it. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hell is, what are you going to miss the most about Twitter? There's a lot of responses. Oh, sweet. So, I didn't know if this one was going to actually generate a lot of responses or not. Hmm. Well, the last response was apparently, what is Twitter? And it was a little confusing <laughs> because there are two people who've asked, what's Twitter? So I don't know if they just didn't see that, uh, whatever. that answer already. Uh, that's kind of funny. Or maybe they just really don't know what Twitter is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So the next response is uh, from Thomas K. Okay. He says that he's going to miss the twits. And <laughs> I don't know if I can say this next part on the radio. The twits and... I, I mean, I can cut it out. The twits and the... Alrighty. The next response is from Michael B. He says, nothing. I've never been on Twitter. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, Pete V says the hashtags. <laughs> okay. You can find hashtags on other in other places. Sure. sure. <laughs> Christine M- Christine M says a quick way to find out if a platform or service is down. <laughs> right. Unless Twitter is down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David I says uh, the cogent, congenial, and comprehensive analysis that the site is known for. Cogent, <laughs> am I saying that right? Yes. <laughs> Congenial and comprehensive yeah, analysis. Like, quite a tongue twister. <laughs> All right. Uh, Krimsky K says that, what are they missing about Twitter most? The Krimsky K says they are still mourning MySpace. <laughs> Too soon. That's so stupid. Uh, this is good. From Neil C. Uh, Neil C. is missing the Tesla recall notifications. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> W says nothing. Don't use it. All right. And we got another from Terry N. Doesn't know what Twitter is. What's Twitter? <laughs> All right. Um, that seems to be the answer, du jour. Uh, uh, chat F says nothing. It is thriving. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joanne C. says, honestly, the immediate news from journalists from other parts of the country world before they are shut down. <laughs> All right. That's something to miss. And then from Ben G. Ben G. is going to miss about Twitter tweeting my nips off every dang day. <laughs> Thanks for making that one radio appropriate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's give one more. One more is from Stephen A. S. Uh, they are missing the bots. 
<laughs> Those bots are cute. It's time for nasty, utterly nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on November twenty eighth, two thousand and nine, thirteen years ago this week, Larry Eli Morio Mancata, a twenty five year old employee of a supermarket in Council Bluffs, Iowa, disappeared mysteriously. Long search failed to turn up any sign of him, and for ten years, his fate and whereabouts were unknown. Meanwhile, the supermarket where he had worked. Went out of business. So not only is he dead, he doesn't have a job. Finally, in 2019, as workers, I should say likely dead. Finally, in 2019, as workers in the building were removing fixtures in preparation for remodeling, they unbolted a massive 12-foot-high cooler and moved it away from the wall. Behind the cooler, they found the remains of a badly decomposed human body. Gross. It took another six months before DNA, jeez, that's how decomposed it was, before DNA evidence confirmed the remains to be those of the missing Eli Mario Moncada. Former workers at the supermarket later told police that they had often climbed on top of the cooler to reach a storage space where they sometimes took unauthorized breaks. It was theorized that in trying to reach the storage space, Mario Moncada had slipped and fallen about 12 feet down into the 18-inch wide space between the cooler and the wall and got stuck there. Since the cooler's electric motors were loud, they had probably drowned out any calls for help he might have made. Some former customers of the store later recalled that they had stopped shopping there because of bad smells, which they had assumed were caused by poor cleaning practices. But they were wrong. That smell was death. No wonder the place went out of business. But you gotta wonder, you know, didn't the other employees or the manager or owner of the store notice it smelled like death? And if they didn't, you gotta wonder about the quality of the store or its staff. Also in Rotten History on November 29th, 1864, 158 years ago this week, about 700 U.S. troops led by Colonel John Chivington descended upon a village of some 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho people living along Sand Creek, an intermittent stream running through a dry region of eastern Colorado. And you know if U.S. troops and indigenous people are involved, this will not end well for the indigenous and this moment in Rotten History will not be allowed to be taught in schools and right-wing communities across the United States because it will lead to white parents lying about this history, making their kids feel bad. The Native American residents of the village had earlier sought peace talks with white officials of the U.S. government, and they had been assured that they would not be disturbed. But now they saw that Chivington and his troops were approaching with hostile intent. Hoping to avoid violence, the villagers quickly raised white flags of surrender, and one of the chiefs even raised the stars and stripes to indicate the desire for peace, ignoring those signals, of course. The white supremacists and genocidal U.S. troops opened fire with long guns and cannon, murdering some 200 people, mostly women and children, even as many came crawling forward on their hands and knees, begging for mercy, which makes you wonder, is it possible this moment in rotten history can get worse well, it can. After most of the villagers were dead and a few survivors had escaped, the Union soldiers burned down the village and cut body parts off corpses, including female genitalia, which they carried away as trophies. Federal investigators later found Colonel Chivington guilty of having led a massacre, largely on the ter- testimony of one witness, Captain Silas Soule, who had been uh, shocked by what he saw and had ordered the men under his command not to fire upon the villagers. Captain Soule received death threats after giving his testimony and was shot dead by an assassin two months later. 
And that's the frontier justice so many open-carry, gun-toting white men with very, very, very small penises not only glamorize but want to bring back to the United States. Finally, in Rotten History on November 30th, 1958, 64 years ago this week, in the UK, the ITV network broadcast an episode of Armchair Theater, a drama anthology series that presented live performances of televised plays every Saturday night. This night's performance was titled Underground. The story took place inside a station of the London Underground subway known as the Tube, where the characters are trapped after a mysterious explosion implied to have been caused by a nuclear attack. Sounds kind of like an interesting play, actually. In the play, a character played by the uh, Welsh actor Gareth Jones was supposed to appear in a scene in which he provided some information eagerly awaited by the other characters. But as Jones was in the makeup room preparing for his entrance, he passed out in the chair and could not be revived. After a quick emergency meeting with the director and crew during a commercial break, the other actors kept the live broadcast going by improvising new dialogue as they went along. They said things like, I'm sure if so-and-so were here, he would say XYZ. Only after the live broadcast was over did the actors learn that Jones, who was only in his early 30s, had suffered a fatal heart attack. It was just a coincidence that his character was supposed to have died a little later in the show. Or was Gareth Jones simply that committed and dedicated to his craft? I guess we'll never know. That's Rotten History, and this is Hal Lindsay, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell. Tomorrow's guest is Mick Dumka. He's a reporter for ProPublica. His work has focused on politics and government, including investigations of local and federal gun policies, secret police databases, and corruption at Chicago City Hall. Mick will be on to discuss his reporting on the growing Chicago Housing Authority scandal. Mick's most recent article on the topic at ProPublica was headlined, Chicago officials withhold key financial information as city hands public housing land over to wealthy ally of the mayor. And of course, we, as always, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch and I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thank you, Lindsay, for producing a spectacular job again. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.